Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. My guest back by the woodpile today is Richard Nelson, Executive Director of the Commonwealth Policy Center, an organization which works around particular legislative issues such as abortion, religious liberty, and fiscal responsibility in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Mr. Nelson talks about not only the center's philosophy and accomplishments, but also of his own adventures, so to speak, and having a giant target on his back put there by many in disagreement with his work. First off, how did you in your life come to the views that you have of abortion and pro-life and in this whole political hot-button realm? You know, it's probably at a very early age that I realized that I was pro-life. Uh, I delivered newspapers when I was uh, 12 years old and then through my teen years and I'd read the papers and I followed the issue of abortion back then and I think at a very early age, maybe 13 or 14, I realized that there was something wrong with abortion, that where a, uh, an innocent child could have its life ended in the womb and, um, and that grew, that conviction that you know there's a new human being in the womb that should be protected by law and uh, yeah, it started early on and it's, it's uh, carried with me into my adult years. How does one move from just having those views to getting politically involved? Or how, how, what's your story? Yeah, hey, that's a really good question. I grew up uh, in Wisconsin, uh, loved to hunt and fish, loved the outdoors, and I still do. And I studied wildlife management and biology at the University of Wisconsin. And my plan was to, first of all, be a game warden. And then I decided I want to be a wildlife manager. Well, then I had this grand idea to go to graduate school. And I wanted to study environmental policy, first environmental law, but then I shifted into the policy arena, and my grand plan was to go work for the EPA or for the a state uh, forest service or something like that, but those doors were closed after graduating from uh, Regent University with a master's in public policy, and um, uh, the door did open for this particular field that I'm in. I'm uh, in the public policy arena, which, and of course, I direct a nonprofit group called the, the Commonwealth Policy Center. But uh, I was looking for work after graduating from Regent, and um, uh, a pastor of the church we were attending said, you know, I know somebody at the state capitol that you need to talk with. And uh, I was just looking to network. I was looking to have somebody point me in the right direction. For I mean, I had a young family, had college debt to pay, and uh, just looking for work. And um, this guy that I met with, uh, heard my story and learned about the school I went to as a Christian graduate school and um, offered me a job uh, after our meeting. I didn't expect that. I must have done something right during the, the, the meeting. But uh, come to find out, he was the state director with the uh, focus on the family chapter, public policy chapter in Wisconsin. And that's how I got into this particular field. Now, that was almost 25 years ago. Okay. And I've uh, been in the field uh, ever since, really. A couple years in Wisconsin and then here in Kentucky for about 22 years. So Focus on the Family is James Dobson's organization. So were you working with him much? or? Well, it was just it was a state uh, chapter, the state affiliate in Wisconsin, called the Family Research Institute of Wisconsin. Okay. And this was back in the, uh, the late 90s when I started with that. Okay. And I was a, a research assistant there, uh, and then a, an opportunity opened up for us to move to Kentucky, 
and we decided, you know, Kentucky has a little nicer weather than Wisconsin, a little mm-hmm. longer uh, spring and fall, and and uh, plus we were ready for a change. It was a new opportunity, and and uh, we jumped at it, and uh, never never looked back since then. So the cultures are quite a bit different, I would say, right between Wisconsin and Kentucky. Yeah. So describe how you did your job in Wisconsin and then how it changed doing it here. Like, is it easier to do here in Kentucky since it's a little bit more conservative or is that just a misconception? Yeah, that's a good question. I was a research uh, guy. I'd, I'd, I'd write. I did radio commentaries up there. I worked in Madison, Wisconsin, which is a very liberal city, a blue city, left-leaning, good city. There are a lot of good people there, a lot of good cultural things it offers, but very liberal. And it was a challenge to work in that environment as a conservative uh, coming down to Kentucky was different in that people were more conservative here. However, it was difficult to um, break into certain circles to become accepted. Uh, you know, there was a language barrier. I had a Wisconsin accent. You might even be hearing some of the words right now, uh, the Wisconsin ease that I carry with me. I'm, I'm expecting you to say go Packers in any minute. Yeah, and I grew up in Green Bay, so yeah, go Packers. <laughs> uh, we're hoping for a better season this year, by the way. But uh, there, there was a language barrier. There's a little bit of a cultural barrier. Moving from uh, the, the south-central Wisconsin to west Kentucky was a big transition. A uh, little slower pace. People thought that we were automatically in the military. Uh, I was young at the time, had a young family, and uh, they just assumed I was at Fort Campbell. And that's where we lived our first uh, year, just uh, in Hopkinsville, and eventually moved over to Trigg County, Cadiz. But um, it's been good. Here, I'll sum it up by saying this. It has been good to work in Kentucky because family values are more openly embraced here pro-life values, pro-religious freedom values, the understanding that the church should engage culture is more openly embraced. Here's here's a big difference. Uh, In Kentucky, you have a church on every street corner. Mm -hmm. In Wisconsin, my home state, you have a tavern on every street corner. Uh, Wisconsin is primarily Catholic. That's the largest single denomination. In Kentucky, it's primarily Protestant. And by the way, never heard of a dry county before I came down to Kentucky. We just didn't have those up north. But uh, so we had some, there are some cultural things to, to adjust to, but overall it's been a good, good change and a good experience. So, what's a typical week for you at your job? Yeah, hey, there's no typical week. Okay. Uh, there's, there, there's no average week. This last uh, couple of months, the legislature's been in session, so I've been traveling to Frankfurt quite a bit. We do have an office there. I've been in the state capitol monitoring legislation actually helping to secure testimony for for legislation, some of the pro-life legislation, and preparing to testify myself. So being in Frankfurt when they're in session, it's it's a a new day every day. Uh, There's something new going on. It feels like on the national scale, people tend to just take sides and they don't seem to, you know, compromise as much as they used to. And I would think that you're either pro-life or you're pro-choice. So when you're doing your job, what exactly are you convincing anybody to do this? Or and some people, I guess you wouldn't even bother trying, I would imagine, but I mean, correct me or explain that. Let me take a step back and just explain what the Commonwealth Policy Center does. Okay. We started six years ago with the goal of elevating principled leaders to serve in our state legislature. So when I say principled, I'm talking about those who are pro-life, those who will protect religious freedom, those who believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. Those three issues are pillar issues to our society, life, marriage, and religious freedom. Mm -hmm. We also have another pillar, which is sound fiscal policies. 
we will only get behind candidates and support candidates that believe in those things. We believe that Kentucky's blessed with freedom and liberty. We believe that we've got a lot of opportunity here. Mm-hmm. But it's because of the, the framework of our government. It's because of these certain understandings that, for example, our rights and our liberties come from God. The purpose of our government is to secure our inalienable rights. Also, the belief that there are moral boundaries in society. And we have utterly forgotten these things. To talk about God as being the giver of our rights today is controversial. To talk about moral boundaries, you say that in public and all of a sudden you're the one that's imposing your values. But here's the truth. Somebody's values will prevail in the public arena. It's just a question of whose values. And the history of this country and the history of the Commonwealth of Kentucky has been that of Judeo-Christian values that have undergirded our government, undergirded our institutions, undergirded our uh, the basis for our law, and we have forgotten this. And so Commonwealth Policy Center is working to elevate leaders who remember these things, and once they get elected, that they, they will serve in Frankfurt to shore up these foundational principles. The other thing that we do is that we're engaging the media realm. And by that, I'm talking about newspaper, radio, uh, sometimes television. We're bringing a biblical worldview, that Judeo-Christian perspective, into the conversations of the day. Tim, one of the challenges we have is that the church has been disengaged from the culture. And not just the church, but the average American, the average Kentuckian for that matter, has forgotten what we have. What we have here is a gift, and it's worth preserving. I mean, just look, you and I doing this broadcast right now, this recording, is a gift. And in most places in the world, it would be considered subversive to talk about government politics, religion, and then to broadcast us over the airwaves. It's absolutely subversive. But we have this freedom here in this country. We can talk about our government. We can talk about politics. We can talk about important issues. And uh, until we realize that this is a gift worth preserving, we're going to continue to lose it. And part of our task at the Commonwealth Policy Center is to remind people of this gift and to help them to to reengage the public arena. So how would you talk to someone who maybe is an atheist or maybe they're, they're like a super cool, a trendy Christian that, that, that gets really embarrassed by that kind of language? Because obviously you have to talk to people of different backgrounds that may not share your worldview but may have some values. I mean, I think everybody in theory you know, is for free speech or is for civil rights, is for life in a general sense. So how would you approach, if I was that kind of person, how would you approach me about considering everything you just said? I love that question. I don't, I'm not asked that question very often, but you, you ask something very important. How do you ask somebody who is not like you, right. somebody who thinks differently, they have a different vocabulary? And that really is a, a really important question that all of us should ask because we're very quick to share our opinion. We're very quick to tell people what we think or how they should think, but we're less interested in finding out how other people think and where they're coming from. We need to have these conversations, but the first thing we do is we try to learn about the person, truly get to know them, mm-hmm. understand them. What, is, what are they thinking about these issues? And then once we, once we listen, and with the real intent to understand, not just listening so I can respond and get my point in there, but when we really try to understand that person, then we can have a conversation. And boy, isn't that a novel idea? Mm-hmm. We need to have more conversations today. Because right now there's, there's a lot of um, bickering, uh, there's a lot of arguing, and we're not having good conversations. There are two camps. You have the political left and you have the political right. 
And it's like they're in trenches and they're lobbing bombs back and forth. Well, that's counterproductive. That's not moving us in, in a healthy direction. So we need to have these conversations. We, we start by getting to know the person. We listen to them. I think as Christians, and that's where I'm coming from this. I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus. And I want to uh, bring a, a, an understanding of how does God fit into our culture? How does God fit into these issues? And I'd submit to you that if you are a believer, if you consider yourself a believer, that God should really factor into these conversations in a big way. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if God is God and who he says he is, then he speaks to all of life. The Bible speaks of him throughout history, the creator of the universe who breathes everything into existence, the one who governs in the affairs of men all throughout history, and the one who's coming back again someday to reclaim his, his rightful place here uh, in his creation. And until we rediscover that, that God has a rightful place in culture and in government and in these conversations of the day, the, the, the church needs to rediscover that. And uh, we, we all, and that's what we're doing right here. We're just we're, we're bringing up this topic in, right. in conversation. I think it's a good conversation, too. Well, okay, so I'm going to play contrary with you. So some of the arguments against what you're saying is when you talk about bringing God back into the public square, they say, well, man, our country was not founded exactly on that. They may admit that some of the founders were believers, but they'll always bring up the separation of church and state. How do you respond to that exactly? Yeah, well, clearly the history tells us that this country was founded. When you look at colonial times and you go back to the Pilgrims and the Puritans, they came here to set up a Christian commonwealth. Mm-hmm. If you look at the Mayflower Compact, it starts out saying, in the name of God, amen. Right. And that they came here to set up a Christian commonwealth. Uh, that was their goal and their intent. And they lived as, as uh, colonists for uh, a couple hundred years before we had the Declaration of Independence. You move to the, from the colonial times to the time of the pilgrims in 1620 to 1776, so you're looking at 150 years there. They still had a decidedly biblical worldview. The men who put the Declaration of Independence together believed that there was a God, a God who governed in the affairs of men, and a God who gives us our inalienable rights. And those two ideas are very clearly presented in the Declaration. God is mentioned four times. The, the key phrase in the Declaration is uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is a key phrase, that there is a God, and he endows us with rights. And that was a radical departure from other nations, because in other nations, the government was the de facto highest authority. But here in this country, the, the founders in the Declaration said, no, there's a God who endows us with, with rights. The implications are this. There is an authority above government. And there's an authority that gives us our rights. It's not the government, mm-hmm. but it's God. And uh, that's a powerful, powerful idea that really put the trajectory of this nation in a very different direction than any other nation in the history of the world has been on. Okay, so they may reply, I've heard it said, well, you know, that's that's fine. And it was fine for that time. But, you know, people used to think the earth was flat. So... These are new days. We, we, we can get beyond that. You can make that argument, but you need to ask yourself, if you were to use that argument, that that was an outdated notion, that was part of their culture and their time in history, 
Ask yourself, would it have gotten this country to where it is today? Practically speaking, if God wasn't part of the political equation, could we have the same freedom that we have? Could we have the same uh, freedom of speech, a freedom of religion, a government that respects conscience? And I would say no. I mean, the, the history of mankind has been one of governments that oppress people. Governments that don't respect human rights, government that don't respect the freedom to organize, the freedom to assemble, the freedom to speak, the freedom to write and distribute your writings. What we have here is something that's absolutely new in all of human history. And so you need to ask yourself, could a secular version of America worked. And you, you have examples of that in, in Europe. In fact, the French Revolution, that was a secular idea of government. They absolutely took God out, and you see where that ended. It didn't end well. So talk about some actual legislation that you guys had a heavy hand in, we'll say. Yeah, this legislative session, we're involved with a number of pro-life bills. Of course, restoring the sanctity of life is a priority for the Commonwealth Policy Center. And uh, one of the bills that we were very involved with was the Chemical Abortion Reporting Act. This is Senate Bill 50, sponsored by Robbie Mills. He's the state senator from uh, Henderson. And this required that anybody that is involved with a chemical abortion, uh, that that be reported to the State Department of Vital Statistics. Actually, the abortionist would have to report that abortion. That's done through a two-step pill process. And uh, we, we helped to secure testimony for that. I was actually prepared to testify, my, to testify myself on that. We prepared talking points. And then also when, when this was being debated, uh, as it moved from one uh, committee to, a, to the chamber, we were uh, updating our talking points to address some of the concerns that the other side had. And uh, we were very, very pleased to see this bill pass handily through both the House and the Senate. What were some of the concerns of the opposition? Yeah, you know, I, I really think that a lot of them were uh, unfounded. They were saying that it might force women to report miscarriages to, uh, to the state. Of course it didn't. It only dealt with abortion as defined by state law. Uh, one of the concerns that a very pro-abortion legislator had was that the government has no business in getting this kind of information from women. Uh, mm. They talked. She talked about playing politics in the womb and that kind of thing. And there's a lot of rhetoric, a lot of high-pitched rhetoric, uh, hyperbole there, but it really does not get to the heart of the issue and why there are laws like this in the first place. So in the first place is because it deals with a health issue. The state does have an interest in knowing how many abortions happen in Kentucky, and that is a law, by the way. How many abortions occur, surgical abortions have to be reported. When it comes to chemical abortions, they don't, by law, they don't have to be reported. But then there's also another thing. Uh, if there's a problem, if there's a, uh, a number, an inordinate number of um, health issues related to chemical abortions, the state wants to know. Why? Because they want to protect women. Mm -hmm. So whenever there's a serious medical procedure like this, the state does have an interest. At the end of the day, the opposition's arguments failed, mm -hmm. and uh, this bill passed uh, into law by an 80% margin in both the House and the Senate. So, uh, in fact, that's the way it was with most of the pro-life bills. They passed very, very handily. You hear this analogy a lot, that in politics, a lot of times, like you said, there'll be a lot of rhetoric, mm -hmm. there'll be a lot of sound bites, people yelling or you know, saying something that will get their voter base, keep them happy. 
But then, like, as soon as the cameras are off, they'll say, man, you know, personally, I think I'm against this, but, you know, I'll, I can't get reelected if I, if I stand against this. Do you see that in your work? You, you do see some uh, people that play to the cameras. You see people that might do something publicly because their base demands that, but behind the scenes they might not be certain or uh, maybe not as, as radically uh, on the opposite of what they're presenting publicly, but you do see that. And one reason why is because in some of the issues are complicated, mm-hmm. and there is room for disagreement and, and maybe room for th- second thoughts. But um, politics is a tough arena. Mm-hmm. It's a very difficult arena where you're trying to hash out laws uh, that that apply to all of us. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have all kinds of different perspectives, a lot of different angles there. And so it just, it it goes along with it that some legislators will have some conflict there. As far as being outright duplicitous, Mm -hmm. I'm sure that that happens. I've I've not, at least recently, I've not experienced it firsthand, or at least a whole lot. President George H.W. Bush was, some people were kind of shocked when they realized that he and his wife were somewhat pro-choice. And they explained that they'd always been against abortion up to after a certain time period. And their argument was that the nervous system doesn't develop until a certain time, and then after that the baby feels pain. And so they opposed it at that point, but before that, that they thought it was okay. Would you be happy if say nationwide, a bill like that was able to get through, would you think it'd be better than nothing or is it not getting at the heart of the matter? I think where the the life debate is right now, it's uh, whether or not the state should have the right to restrict abortion. Mm -hmm. It is expected that some case will come before the U.S. Supreme Court and uh, the court could undo Roe v. Wade. We believe that there are votes on the Supreme Court right now to put this issue back to the states. One of the bills that Kentucky just passed is the Roe v. Wade trigger bill, and it says that if Roe v. Wade is ever overturned, then it will take us back to pre-1973 laws, which that means that most abortions would be banned in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. That law would be almost a counterbalance to the New York and Virginia laws that were saying kind of the opposite. If Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion's totally legal, period. That's right. In New York, they, they... uh, passed a constitutional amendment that allows abortion up to the ninth month of pregnancy. Literally, could be just minutes before that baby takes its first breath. It's a radical pro-abortion law. I call that abortion extremism, mm-hmm. and uh, some other states are, are trying to follow suit. I believe most states will not, though, because we realize that there is a new human being there. It might be very small. Even that one-cell zygote, a newly formed human being, has all of the genetic capacity. That is the beginning of life's journey. And uh, that life will continue to develop the first month, second, third, all the way to the ninth. And then it's born, and it's still developing. That's still a life totally dependent on its mother. It might be born and in the world, but it's utterly dependent. And we say, we know as a civilized people that mothers should not be allowed to kill their newborns. Well, how is that different than saying that a mother in her ninth month of pregnancy shouldn't be allowed to kill her newborn either? But that's what the New York legislature did. They said it's okay one minute for that mother to kill the newborn, but a minute after, once it comes into the world, it's not okay. We're pushing back and saying that there needs to be a, a, a starting point where we're going to protect all of life, and that begins right at conception. Uh, it sounds radical. Uh, I think that many Americans don't understand that or they're not quite there yet, 
but that's the principal place that's where we need to begin to protect life. Give me some stories like what's the worst, I guess, uh, protest or the most uncomfortable situations you've been in doing your job? Yeah, hey, that I've been in a number of difficult situations because when you are talking about shoring up foundational pillars of our society, especially marriage, when, when that battle was raging just a few years ago, uh, that opened up uh, opportunities for me to do debates on public uh, radio, public television. I'd write opinion columns for some of the bigger newspapers. And I would debate um, LGBT advocates uh, in the public forum. What was really difficult was uh, that we saw things from such a different angle. I mean, they saw this as a human rights issue. I saw it from the perspective that there are moral boundaries. They saw marriage, for example, as a, as a fundamental right for them to marry. I saw it as a God-ordained institution. So we approach that from very different worldviews. But when, when you have such different sides, so committed to their positions, getting together in that arena, it's going to make for some conflict and some uncomfortable moments. And no doubt both sides are assigning a morality to it. So I can imagine that the, on the LGBT side that if you oppose what they're for that you must hate them or you yeah. must or you're trying to um, take away their civil rights yeah. and of course it, I can't see how they wouldn't get upset with you or you know maybe throw some names out there and, and like likewise maybe you see what they're doing as a threat to maybe your family or your, your uh, religion I, I don't know how you would answer that no you, you're, you're right on and, and just by virtue of me having a position on that issue and saying that you know marriage is between a man and a woman and it's not me it's not Richard Nelson who defined this but this is what our creator defines mm-hmm. by having that view the other side views it as threatening that it's hateful that it's demeaning, that I'm dismissing their humanity, and I'm not. I just, I have a different idea. I have a different conviction that this is what marriage is. It doesn't make me hateful or evil. It just makes me a person with a different idea. And we're having such a difficult time, Tim, to get around that. We can't have our own convictions on these important issues. You'd ask me difficult situations that I've been in. Uh, One of the most difficult debates was uh, with two transgender activists on one of the state's largest public radio stations. I was the lone conservative there. The moderator was leaning towards their side. But when you have people who are born one gender, but they're very clearly identifying as the other gender, you're talking about an issue that was once theoretical that's now been personalized. Because the person across that table from you, it's not theoretical. That's a real person, and they're living out their belief. And, and, and I wanted to go into that particular debate in a, in a way that was respectful. I wanted to affirm their dignity. I didn't want to harm them. And yet I was going into it with, with firm convictions. And that was a difficult time. There was some friction and some uncomfortable moments. But my conviction as a follower of Jesus, though, is we deal with tough issues and engage in tough debates we need to be gracious. We need to be careful how we present. Uh, we need to lead with, the, with grace and land on truth. We don't lead with the truth, beat them over the head with it, and then end up somewhere else. We need to be gracious, and I think that that opens doors for further conversation as well. But I've been forgiven, my Savior risen, I'm out the prison, I know that. I got the power to say no to all of my struggles, gotta control that. Every time we slip and we fall, gotta get back up and fight on. We are not defined by our past, the future look bright, I see the light on. This is more on the libertarian side, and maybe some conservatives would say, okay, we believe that liberty first, and then we may have our personal convictions, which would dictate our lives. But 
They feel like okay, we have to defend liberty. And so someone may say, I'm a Christian who thinks that uh, abortion is wrong or homosexuality is, is a sin, but I support their legal right to, to do what they want, you know, because that, well, they're not Christians, maybe, or maybe they are, that's, that's their choice. So as long as they're not violating the rights of other people, so how would you answer that? Yeah, I would say that that's a very dangerous place to go because uh, morality doesn't depend on an individual and what is right doesn't depend on an individual. And it's not just between not just them, but two consenting adults. Mm-hmm. Uh, if something is harmful, if it undermines human flourishing, if it violates natural law, then that's of concern to everybody in society. And uh, again, the premise of our country is that there is a creator who endows us with rights. So therefore, rights have a definition, and they're within parameters. Uh, and society does well when it follows the, the, the mold that the creator has, has put into his creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we push against that, for example, if we redefine marriage, or if we, we redefine sexual boundaries, there are always consequences to that. Uh, you may get by for some time, uh, you may, uh, uh, things may seem to be okay, but at the root of it, if there is something that is immoral, if there's something that goes against what the Creator has said, there are consequences to that individual, and then often there will be consequences to society. Uh, with the marriage issue, uh, if we say that two men or two women parenting a child is the same as a man and a woman who are committed together in marriage, if, if that's the same as parenting a child, we're really saying to children, men and women are the same. There's really no difference. And that's where we are right now. We can't even define what gender is in our culture. If you're born biologically male but think you're a female, who is anybody to tell you otherwise? Right. And vice versa. If you're a female but think you're, you're a male, uh, who's anybody to say otherwise? We cannot even definitively say together as a people that Gender is inborn. We're defined by our Creator. These are parameters that God has given us. We can no longer say that. Do you feel like someone could hold that view that, again, what people do in their bedroom is is their business, but also can oppose the, like the speech codes and the political correctness and maybe the... Um, I think you were just mentioning that you have to go to a meeting in Henderson about... The changing some of the civil rights codes. You know, what's interesting is that conservatives were once told that they're the bedroom police. 20, 30 years ago, uh, those who were opposed to legalizing homosexuality, which, by the way, it's a fairly new legalization. Most of the states had outlawed sodomy. Uh, all 50 states at some point had it until the early 2000s. And it was undone by court rulings. It wasn't done by legislative measures. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now... Uh, the, the tables have turned where the other side wants to drag their sexuality into the public square and change the laws based on it, based on what's done in private. I find that to be ironic. So, But you were asking how if somebody that believes that their private bedroom behavior could correspond to them being opposed to speech codes, speaking out against certain issues. And I think, yeah, you probably could. I think you could, you could hold both of those views. I think one of the things, though, that we're searching for in our society are basic principles. What are overarching principles? And that's something that we're missing. You know, for example, what is, what is a right? Where do rights come from? What is the obligation of government to secure rights for the people? Uh, until we find the, 
these definitions until we can have a common understanding of these of these major principles we're just going to have splinter groups arguing for their own thing mm-hmm. and I think that's where we are. We have uh, identity politics. You have certain groups that are arguing for their one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's not what this country's about. We are Americans and people from every nation and every ethnicity on the globe. We come here to pursue certain ideals. We agree that each person has dignity uh, and endowed with rights. We agree in the rule of law. We agree that people can pursue their God-given calling and create wealth and keep it without the government plundering it. There are certain ideals that we agree in as Americans, and those ideals are more powerful. They're transcendent, if you will, over these different identities, these identity groups that our politics have splintered into, which is really damaging to, to our political fabric. One of the most interesting things that happened was years ago when uh, the court had already defined marriage. It was the Defense of Marriage Act was overturned, and we were anticipating the Supreme Court to rule on the marriage issue. And I was speaking at churches all across Kentucky on the implications of redefining marriage. And I'll never forget one church in particular in uh, far west Kentucky, that uh, very conservative church. The pastor had me come in and, and speak on this issue. And I was talking about where does marriage come from? Who defines it? Why is it important? And then what does it mean for society when it's redefined? And in the middle of my talk, there were three or four young people in the back of the church that promptly got up and they walked out. And I thought, oh boy, I know I stepped on toes. This is not good. Mm -hmm. And anyways, I continued on and didn't think a whole lot of it until after the service. And I was at the door um, saying goodbye to people and shaking hands and doing that kind of thing. And in the line towards the back, there was a young lady who came up to me, pretty um, strident. And she had a look in her eye like, I'm coming after you. And it was not a good feeling. But she lit into me and said, why are you hating on my people? Why are you hateful towards the LGBT community? And I thought, whoa, wait a minute, hold on. Uh, I said, I'd be happy to talk, but this isn't the time or place. There were people that were waiting and they were leaving church. And I wanted to uh, say, say goodbye to other people. I gave her my card, and I said, um, give me a call. Be happy to get together with you over a cup of coffee. I didn't expect her to call me. She did. Later that afternoon, she gave me a call and said, hey, Richard, I'd like to meet with you uh, at a local coffee shop tomorrow. And I said, okay. And I told her to name the time, and, and uh, we got together the next day. And as I was walking into the coffee shop, I expected to see her uh, but at the table were two other people, and all of their eyes were glued on me. And I thought, oh, boy. It was not, they did not have happy looks on their face. Right. And I thought, what did you just step into? Uh-huh. And I realized as I approached the table that um, uh, I needed to set some ground rules because uh-huh. I didn't want to have a shouting match. Right. I didn't want it to be an argument and get ugly there. That wouldn't that would be unproductive. And I told them that. I said, hey, I'm glad to meet with you, but... Uh, Let's try to make this a productive conversation. Right. Let's try to listen to each other. Let's try to be respectful. Let's try to learn from each other. Did they resent you saying that? I, I, no, I don't think so. Okay. They, they, and and I, I said, if we do that, it could be a really good meeting. Mm-hmm. But if we just argue, if we just try to talk over one another and prove our points, it's going to be a bad meeting. I said, let's not have a bad meeting. And um, I sat down, got some coffee, sat down, and... Across from me was this uh, young lady 
who identified as a lesbian. And right there on the table was a pink Bible. So mm-hmm. she was identifying as a follower of Jesus. And mm-hmm. she said she was. She grew up in church and, and um, told me her story. And I wanted to hear her story. I, I said, yeah, tell me, you know, what, what, what happened? And, and she grew up believing in Jesus, went to church every Sunday, but she fell into sin when she was in her high school years. And the church ended up kicking her out. Um, she got pregnant out of wedlock, was in a bad relationship, uh, left the church, but um, found somebody. She eventually um, found her significant other in the same sex and was in a relationship for a long time. And she told me that that was her comfort, that was her security. This other person, this other woman, was her soulmate, as she put it. And I, I heard her story, and I empathized with her pain in that she, um, she was hurt by the church. She found herself in a very difficult place when she probably needed the church more than anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, she found her security in this other person. And I got to share, when she was done, I got to share my story. And I said, you know, I, I'm sorry that you went through that, and I'm sorry that the church, instead of helping you and walking through that with you, was, was hurtful. Um, I can't really relate to all of that, but let me tell you some of my story. And I was able, since she opened up with me, I opened up with her. Some of my stuff that I went through. I'm a sinner with a story, um, and I shared some of my stuff. And after I shared some of my sin that I went through, um, I said, you know, my sin is not your sin. Your sin is not my sin. But we have a Savior who saves us from sin. And I'll never forget one thing she said to me was that um, about her other significant other. She'd been in a relationship for 10 years. And she said, this other person is my everything. They're my everything. And when it was my turn to speak, I said, you know, you identify as a Christian. You say you believe in the word. But if you really believe in that, your main identity is in Jesus Christ. He's the one who saved you. He's the one who forgives you of your sins. He's the one who's redeemed you. He gives you a future and a hope. It's not in this other person. That other person will disappoint you. And as I was sharing this, I mean, she was, she was, tears were coming to her eyes. It was a heartfelt conversation. Yeah, that's a heterosexual problem too. (laughs) Yeah. I've done it. Yeah. This girl's going to save me. Yeah. And and you know, this is something that uh, we had a really good conversation, approaching a very tough issue from different worldviews and different perspectives. But we listened to one another. We were respectful. We had good dialogue, and I was able to share what I understood to be a biblical view of who Jesus is and what he does for us, but also a biblical view of human sexuality. By the way, I came in there with a number of scriptural passages Mm -hmm. that spoke of um, God's standards for sexuality and God's standards for marriage. I didn't use any of them. I put those on the shelf. I'm I'm sure she's heard them before. I think so. But it was more of a, it was a a very important meeting that we had. Mm -hmm. And and it was a good meeting. And the other two folks, did they? They they interacted and we, we, they chimed in and, and uh, overall, we, I felt like it was a productive conversation. One of the big takeaways is that we could sit down together at that table and see each other as human beings made in the image of God. We all had different opinions on this mm-hmm. issue. At least I was different than the other three on this issue. But uh, they could see that I did not hate them. Mm-hmm. I wasn't there to condemn them. I wasn't there to call them names. But I was identifying as a sinner, uh-huh. made in the image of God, forgiven by Jesus, 
And uh, that was the message that they needed to hear. And I would challenge the listeners to be willing to take a risk and to engage in those kind of conversations as well. Ramblers in the wilderness, yeah, we can't find what we need. We get a little restless from the search and get a little worn down in between. Yeah, we'd love to uh, love to hear from you. You can find us on the web. We have a website, commonwealthpolicycenter.org. It's just the name of our group, commonwealthpolicycenter.org. We have a blog. We have policy papers. You can find our uh, daily commentary called the Commonwealth Minute there, and also an email sign-up. You can get our uh, monthly email update, uh, again, at commonwealthpolicycenter.org. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear a uh, response to this program. Uh, or if we can be of further help, you can communicate to us through the web, commonwealthpolicycenter.org. And folks can send their hate mail that way as they, well. <laughs> they can send it. Rather not get that, but we do get it from time to time. But right. yeah. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. If you'd like to hear more on issues of life, you might give In the Corner Back by the Woodpile 177 a listen, where the Reverend Marvin Hightower talks about his views and personal experience with abortion and race, or... If you'd like to hear someone on the other side of the LGBT argument, DJ and producer Ron Slomowitz chats with us on episode 74, mostly about music, but also about current concerns in the gay community. 